All right, hey everyone, uh, welcome to Explore Your Roots. Okay, on today's episode, our very first episode, we're gonna focus on an extraordinarily strong woman from my mom's side of the family named Ulrika Wilhelmina Gustafsdottir. Okay, and we are going to recap, summarize, and highlight her life's events, um, accomplishments, and impacts, and her legacy. All right, here we go. All right, so to begin, Ulrika's my great, great, great grandmother on my mom's side of the family. That's to say, uh, my connection to her goes through my mom, and then to her dad, my grandpa, Aegon, and then his mom, Edith, and then we get to Ulrika. So most of the research that I have is from genealogy websites like Family Search, and also from stories that my mom and my grandpa have told me. Okay, so Erika was the last of eight siblings born on a farm called Kaltrop in the state of Södermanland in Sweden on April 10th, 1860, and shortly after she was brought to the local Lutheran church to be baptized. Of her siblings, she was only one of four to survive to adulthood. And her family lived on a farm, uh, which her parents owned, and most of the community actually were farmers. So growing up, Ulrika only attended formal school for a little bit of time because her father believed that a farm girl's real place uh, was working in the home. Though Ulrika did enjoy learning, and, and she said that her lunch every day consisted of cold-boiled potatoes and flesk, which is like a bacon. After her primary schooling, Ulrika continued her education by teaching herself how to read and write by using the Bible. On September 27th of 1870, when Ulrika was only 10 years old, tragedy struck her family. Her mother, Christina Erson, passed away, which led to many dramatic changes around the farm. First, Ulrika's father, Gustav, sold the rights of the farm to her brother-in-law, or Ulrika's sister's husband. And this forced Ulrika to drop out of school because she then had to work to provide for her own room and board. So Ulrika worked in the fields, carrying large sacks of grains, up and down to the silo. So imagine a 10, 12, or 14-year-old doing that. And while working at this young age, she fell and hurt her back, an injury that would last the rest of her life. During her youth, she learned to card wool, which means disentangling and cleaning the wool. Uh, she also learned to spin wool and to weave the finished threads into cloth. When Ulrika was 14 years old, she attended the local parish to go to confirmation school which lasted only a few months and was pretty customary at this time for youth of that age. There she was taught the doctrines of the Lutheran Church and was taught other virtues such as obedience. It became time in 1876 when Ulrika was just 16 years old to leave the house and start working on her own. So her father made arrangements for her to go work at a local farm nearby called Rasmussen, Two short years later, in 1878, she moved to another farm nearby to continue working, and lo and behold, a young man only five years older than her named Johann Wilhelm Johnson also moved to this farm. Now, Johann and Ulrika actually already knew each other at this time, 
through friends and church. And it's speculated that it was around this time that they started their formal courtship. So at her new job, Orika was tasked with the dairy duties, which included milking and making butter, as well as other duties that her boss would give her around the house. Johan, on the other hand, was tasked with the field work, which meant harvesting and plowing and seeding. Now you have to understand, at this time it was customary that if you were working on the farm, you would live on the farm. So all the male workers lived in a barn, and all the female workers likely lived in the attic. Okay, and beds at this time were small cots or mattresses filled with hay. And a worker's diet consisted of boiled potatoes, rye bread, and maybe some mush. And work was actually kind of tough on the farm. The only time off that people got was on Sundays to go to church. During their courtship, Ulrika recounted that Johan would often come uh, to pick her up to go on walks. And whenever he arrived, he would whistle to the house to let her know that he was there. And funnily enough, this actually annoyed Ulrika greatly, but she liked him enough and put up with it. Okay, so there's something you have to understand about this time period. In Sweden, there was a caste system. So starting from the top, you have your aristocrats. And those are basically really rich people who own land and have estates. And then you have other people under that who were born of noble birth, but maybe didn't necessarily have so much land or money, but they were always given preference when it came to government and other stuff. Then at the bottom, you had your peasant class. But this class was also subdivided into two different groups. On one hand, you have the bonds, and those were people who owned their own land, like Ulrika's family. And then on the other hand, you have the crofters, who were people who didn't own land and had to work on other people's lands. And that's the class that Johan and his family belonged to. So when Ulrika and Johan's courtship started to turn serious, Ulrika's father and her sisters didn't really approve of their relationship. This is mainly because Johan was a lower caste than them and didn't really have prospects of owning land. Perhaps in spite of her family's opinions, in November of 1881, they got married and moved to Johan's family's house. Not long after their marriage, in May of 1882, they moved to a place called Park Stugen, which means park house probably because the house was located on a big lake in a big, beautiful forest. And this house was only located about a mile away from Sparholm Slot Castle, which is more of an estate. And this beautiful spot was home for them for many years to come. And it consists of two main rooms, an upstairs loft, a small sleeping room, and a cellar. And at this house, they were very self-sufficient. It was March of 1883 when Johan and Ulrika had their first child, Ellen Victoria Wilhelmina. The second child was born in October of the next year, 1884, and his name was Enar Leonard. The third child followed a few years later in June of 1887, and her name was Elsa Cecilia Ingeborg. Unfortunately, this child had problems with her knee, and despite efforts to save her young life, she passed away in 1893, just before her sixth birthday. Then the fourth child, Ulrika's second son, was born the next year in 1894, and his name was Emil. A few years later, in 1899, Ulrika's fifth and last biological child was born, and her name is Edith, of whom I come through. 
Okay, so I say biological because it's important for the story that I'm about to tell. So Ulrika was a mother to her five biological children, but her and Johan actually adopted two more children. Greta, the first who was adopted, was only two weeks old when she was given to Ulrika in 1898. In January of 1900, only a few months after Edith was born, Gertrude arrived in the home of Ulrika and Johan. Since her and Edith were only a few months apart, they grew up together and became almost like twins. Both of these girls were given to Ulrika because their biological parents, unfortunately, were too poor and had to work and weren't able to care for them. Okay, starting from the top, Ulrika's children are Ellen, Enar, Elsa, Emil, Greta, Edith, and Gertrude. And this was not the only charitable act shown by Ulrika. During her time in Park Stugen, she cared for over 30 children, including orphan children, children whose parents weren't able to care for them, and other children whose parents and families were in dire need of temporary help. In 1905, real tragedy struck their family. Ellen, the oldest child, who was only about 20 years old at the time, was chased around the farm by some horses. Just as she made it to the fence and crossed over, she collapsed and died of probably a heart attack. Because Ulrika and Johan paid for the funeral, they experienced some financial difficulties. To receive help, they went to the local parish priest of the Swedish Lutheran Church. However, Ulrika and Johan were not of the Lutheran faith. No matter how hard the local priest tried to get Ulrika and Johan to denounce their faith and join the Lutheran Church, he just could not. This very much angered the local parish. And because the church and pastor had so much power in Sweden at this time, and in order to gain leverage over them because of this personal vendetta, the priest had the state take away the two adopted children, Greta and Gertrude, who were only seven and five at the time, and put them into an orphanage or a foster care facility in Stockholm. When it came time for the trial, they had the support and the backing of their community and local leaders, but the state eventually and unfortunately ruled that it wasn't a matter of money at all, but it was a matter of obedience to the local parish. It took a long time for Ulrika to save enough money to be able to go and visit the girls in Stockholm. When she finally did and finally got there, she was appalled at the conditions that she found them in. You have to know that Ulrika was very clean and organized, and she found the girls in very dirty clothes and with lice-ridden hair. When Ulrika demanded answers from the foster parents, one of them responded, I don't understand why you're so upset. After all, it's only Easter, and I personally wash the girls' hair at Christmas. It's safe to say that it broke Ulrika's heart to see the girls living in these conditions, and unfortunately there was nothing that she could do about it. And she wasn't able to visit the girls again, but she did write to them and keep in contact with them often. In the spring of 1912, when Ulrika was 52 years old, she began to experience some health problems. Because she had helped so much around the Sparholm Castle, Countess Dixon, the countess who lived there at the time, was able to send her to a hospital to get better. Before Ulrika became ill, she had a young child placed in her care who suffered from epilepsy and seizures. When she became sick and had to go stay in the hospital, Edith, who was only 12 years old, had to help care for this child. 
Okay, 1914, World War I broke out. And luckily for Ulrika, Sweden managed to stay out of the fighting, but still the country felt the economic effects. Fortunately for Ulrika and her family, they had a lot of fruit trees, a cow, and some pigs, and were able to be a little bit insulated from this crisis. Before the war broke out, Ulrika had two of her children emigrate to America. And so her and Johan and the rest of the family were always eager during the war to hear from her children who were in the U.S. Soon they found out that their son Emil, who was working in Arizona at the time, had been drafted to the war, but he served all of his time within the U.S. A bit before the war had ended, Ulrika and Johan decided and made up their mind that they wanted to emigrate to America as well. And so they started to save as much as they were able to. And when the war had ended, their funds were just about ready and they had their passport applications filled. In the spring of 1919, they were all set and ready to go. And they just had to sell all of their possessions since they were only allowed to take a couple things and some wooden chests that Johan had. Ulrika and Johan had now lived at Park Stugen for 37 years, so it was a little hard to say goodbye. In their possessions to take with them to America were some photographs of their children, some books, a few copper kettles and pans, a glass paperweight, some paintings, and some of Johan's tools. Also in their possession was a couple of embroidered tablecloths and pillowcases that Ulrika had made, and of course some clothes and also a silver spoon. And then the rest of their possessions were sold at a public auction. When the day finally came, they boarded the train at the Sparholm station and took one last look at the countryside. Imaginably, it was a day of mixed emotions. Excitement to see their children who had left and emigrated to America a few years earlier and see some of their new grandchildren who had been born in America. Also excited for new prospects of work and different opportunities that they had not had in Sweden. Also sad because they would be leaving behind their home and their friends, and some of their family, who they knew they would probably never see again. Their journey to America would begin in Stockholm, and they would go by boat all the way down to New York, and this trip cost about 2,025 crowns, which is the equivalent of $78. Once on the boat, like many other passengers, they were put into a small compartment and had their things put away. When they arrived to America, like many other immigrants in this time, they were first taken to Ellis Island. They went through the entire process, and it was there that their last name was Americanized. It was changed from the spelling J-O-N-S-S-O-N to J-O-H-N-S-O-N. Then shortly after, they boarded a train to go to their final destination, which was Salt Lake City, where their son was currently living at the time. When they arrived at the station in Salt Lake City, they were greeted by their son, Enar. It was at his house that Johan and Rika stayed at until they were finally able to rent a house of their own in Sandy, Utah, where they had a lot of friends and there was a large Scandinavian population there. In 1920, they were finally able to buy a home of their own for a grand total of 700 American dollars. Not long after they arrived in the U.S., Ulrika and Johan had filed their papers to become American citizens. But in order for them to do this, they had to prove that they could read and write in English. 
Johan eventually lost interest in learning English because all of his friends and family spoke Swedish, but Ulrika decided to continue with it. And at this time, Ulrika and Johan lived in Sandy close to their children, Emil, Enar, and Edith. Because of the cold weather, Enar and Emil decided to move to sunny Southern California. And Johan and Ulrika were a little sad, but they started to save up enough money to be able to go and visit them. Despite having their sons move away, they benefited dearly from a large, thriving, and strong Swedish community in and around the Salt Lake City area. Because of this large community, they were able to participate in church activities, celebrate holidays, and other cultural events, all in Swedish. Because Ulrika had some health issues in her legs, it was decided that she would take the train all the way to Los Angeles, not only to see doctors, but also to visit her two children who had moved there. Down in Los Angeles, they were able to do a procedure that helped alleviate pain, but eventually it came back. Johan and Ulrika were always busy at their home in Sandy, Utah. Ulrika would weave rugs to use and sell, as well as spinning and sewing other clothing for them. And Johan would tend to their garden, where they had many fruit trees and grew other vegetables and potatoes. Ulrika also helped out in the garden a lot, and because of her green thumb, she went on to win several blue ribbons at the county fair. In 1931, Ulrika and Johan celebrated their golden wedding anniversary. It was at this time that their son, Enar, helped them install electricity as well as a flushing toilet in their home. In the early months of 1937, Johan suffered several strokes. Although his condition improved for a little bit, he sadly suffered his last stroke on March 23, 1937 and passed away. Two years later, in October of 1939, Edith's oldest daughter, Elise, spent the night with her grandmother, Ulrika. The next morning, Ulrika became dizzy, and so Elise ran all the way home to get her mom. When Elise and her mother, Edith, returned, they found Ulrika, and she said she was fine, and she was laughing and joking around. She laughed a bit, and then went silent. Ulrika had finished her life and passed away on October 18, 1839, almost before her 80th birthday. Ulrika and Johan had truly lived a great life. Because of their many sacrifices and courage to stand up for what is right, many of their descendants, including me, can have amazing opportunities. I, along with so many, are so grateful for their stories and their examples that they have shown us and for the strong role models that they are. So I challenge everyone to learn something about their ancestors and to share it. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to like this video or the podcast. And don't forget to like and follow us on YouTube for cool visuals and other pictures, as well as the audio version on Apple Podcasts to learn more about history and stories about mine and possibly your ancestors.